Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Five years ago, I taught a series here in the church that I entitled The Mission of God. And given that most of us struggle to remember what was spoken about last week, let alone five years ago, I've decided unapologetically to redo and revisit that series. Actually, the leadership team asked me if I would revisit the subject, so um, I'm, I'm going to do that. The reason I want uh, to visit it, it's prudent to visit vital themes with some degree of regularity, is because of a phenomenon that we call mission drift. Now, this first message is kind of an introduction to the whole idea of the mission of God and, and this idea of people drifting from vital truths, mission drift. So let me begin by turning you to a scripture that has to do with this idea of drift. It's Hebrews chapter one, uh, chapter 2, sorry, verses 1 and verse 3, where the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And then in verse 3, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, the concern of the writer to the Hebrews isn't that the believers of that day and that place and that time would actively reject the truth, but simply that they would get distracted and neglect it and would allow it to just drift from them. The Greek word that's translated by the English word to drift means to glide or to flow by. It has the same idea as as is used in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 21, which one translation says, Let not my words flow past before thine eyes. They just drift away. Now the feature of drift, of course, is that it's silent, and as a result, it often goes unnoticed. It's a bit like a boat that slips its moorings and drifts away with the tide. And if you happen to be on that boat, and perhaps somewhat preoccupied below deck, there is actually no way that you would be aware that this drift was actually occurring. If it was jarring or if it jolted, then attention would be drawn to the fact that something was happening. But drift doesn't announce itself. Initially, it goes unnoticed. And in the early stages, the gravity of drift is rarely seen. It's only when it's run its course that we see its disastrous results. You and I are afloat on great currents, both within and without. And it's incumbent upon us as individuals and us as a community to be aware of the possibility of drift, and that we do everything that needs to be done to ensure that we don't. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the story of God's Old Testament community, you can't help but notice the fact that there is a recurring phenomenon that some theologians call covenant renewal ceremonies. Now, we might call that anti-drift ceremonies. These were ceremonies or events where the people were reminded of what story they were living in and what story they were supposed to live out. It was a call to remember. It was a call to remember who they were, their identity, why they were here, their mission, and how they should live, the ethics or the lifestyle that the two previous points, identity and mission, should result with or result in. Now, one of those um, 
covenant renewal ceremonies is found in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 through 13. Let me read it to you. It says, Then Moses wrote out the laws he had already delivered to the people and gave them to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark containing the Ten Commandments of the Lord. Moses also gave copies of the law to the elders of Israel. The Lord commanded that these laws should be read to all the people at the end of every seventh year, the year of release, at the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel would assemble before the Lord at the sanctuary. Call them together, the Lord instructed, men, women, children and foreigners living among you, to hear the laws of God and to learn his will so that you will reverence the Lord your God and obey his laws. Do this so that your little children who have not known these laws will hear them and learn how to revere the Lord your God as long as you live in the promised land. So here's Moses. Actually, one of the key words in the book of Deuteronomy is a Hebrew word, zakor, and it's used 21 times, and it's usually translated by the English word remember. I want you to remember what Moses is saying to the people here. And every seven years at the year of Jubilee, gather people together, recount these laws, and remember. Remember who you are, what you're called to do, and how you should live. You know, it's been said that we are what we remember. Uh, Jacob uh, Neusner, a Jewish writer, commented, Civilization hangs suspended from generation to generation by the gossamer strand of memory. We hang by our memory. And as with an individual suffering from dementia, so with a culture or organization as a whole, the loss of memory is experienced as a loss of identity. And if you seek to sustain identity, then you must renew memory regularly. So Moses' command is that Israel attend these anti-drift ceremonies at least every seven years. Joshua does the same at the end of his uh, time leading Israel. In Joshua 24, it says, Joshua summoned all the people of Israel to him at Shechem, along with their leaders, the elders, the officers, the judges. So they came and presented themselves before God. And if you read chapter 24, you see Joshua retelling the story, reminding them who they are, what they're called to be, and how they should live. Josiah does the same, King Josiah, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. Then the king sent for the elders and the other leaders of Judah and Jerusalem to go to the temple with him. So all the priests, prophets, and the people, small and great of Jerusalem and Judea, gathered there at the temple so that the king could read to them the entire book of God's law, which had been discovered. This is an anti-drift ceremony. Ezra and Nehemiah do the same. You can read that in, Ezra, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9. Psalm 105, Psalm 106 are the retelling of Israel's story. And the whole point of the retelling of the story is remember who you are, what you're called to be and do, and how you should live. These are counter-drift stories. See, drift is a human default setting, and it will occur inevitably unless intentionally and actively resisted. It happens across the board. I, I think perhaps pastorally the most often heard comment I've had as people are telling me that they're about to go their own ways and divorce is we just, we just drifted apart. There was nothing kind of massive that jolted us. We just woke up one morning and realized we're strangers. We, we drifted apart. It's something that happens in all kinds of personal relationships. It happens in organization. 
For those of you who do physics, you know there's a theory for drift that exists. The second law of thermodynamics, which basically states entropy, which is the disorder in a system, increases without intervention. Things drift downwards toward disorder unless there is intervention. Mission drift is phenomenally common. Let me give you three historical illustrations of mission drift in organizations that I'm pretty sure all of you have heard of. Number one, this is the mission statement of a very famous university, and it says, it is intended that our students would be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and to know Jesus Christ. The mission statement of the famous university, Harvard. Today, Harvard remains an incredible institution with an unmatched reputation for excellence, but it no longer resembles the founding purpose and statement. And today, perhaps attendance at Harvard would possibly more likely rob you of faith rather than strengthen it. In 1844, a man by the name of George Williams founded the YMCA, the Young Man Christians Association. Its founding statement reads like this. Our objective is the improvement of the spiritual condition of young men engaged in houses of business by the formation of Bible classes, family and social prayer meetings, mutual improvement societies or any other spiritual agency. The YMCA was powerfully Christian and was either directly or indirectly, indirectly responsible for sending out over 20,000 missionaries. Mission drift occurred. And in the 1970s and the 1980s, the YMCA reinvented itself and became known as a family fitness centre. 2010, it changed its name to reflect its new identity. They dropped the CMA and just called it the Y. Just as well the village people sang their song in 1978, you know. Because <laughs> now it's just the Y. And Y doesn't quite work with, you know, the song. In the Middle Ages, the third illustration, the Franciscans began a charity similar to what we would call our present-day food banks. As part of an attempt to serve the poor, they also provided low-interest loans as an, as an alternative to the loan sharks that were exploiting the poor at that time. And those organisations became the lifeblood of the peasantry and became the forerunner of what we now know as pawn shops. Their initial mission was to serve the poor, Today, as you know well, having drifted from that initial purpose, they are possibly known more for their exploitation of the poor than their service of them. The gravitational pull of entropy is an unrelenting force unless there is intentional review and renewal. And all of us know that renewal is one of the most difficult of undertakings. It requires intentionality, reflection and focus, and our busy lives don't really provide, um, or at least don't easily provide, opportunity for those things. Harold Macmillan was the British Prime Minister from 1957 to 1963, and he was once asked what he feared most in politics, and he responded, events, my dear boy, events! And uh, what happens is events, life happens. As we've seen in the last few weeks, to misquote Forrest Gump, events happen. We get caught, some of you haven't seen Forrest Gump, don't worry about it. We get caught in events and problems and crosswinds and circumstances not of our own making, whether it is COVID, war, 
cyclones, earthquakes, events happen. And the reality is uh, things like that happen on a more personal level and we've got to respond to them and they come at us regularly. And sometimes we don't get the chance to make the mid-course corrections and we drift far from where we intended to go and we forget our identity, who we are. We forget our mission, our calling, and we forget how we're called to live. Without intentional remembering and renewal, we can forget the journey that we have been called as believers to continue and what story we are called to be part of. So mission drift is drifting away from the story that you and I are called to be part of. Now what I want to do by way of introduction to this series on the mission of God is talk a little bit about this idea of story. What do I mean when I say we're called to be part of a story? Well, we live in and are shaped by stories. Let me quote a couple of people. Christopher Wright, we live in a storied universe, he says. Len Sweet says, we have a storied identity. And Alistair McIntyre says, man is essentially a storytelling animal and it is through narratives that we begin to learn who we are and how we're called to live and behave. Now, if you find the word story or narrative kind of a little bit confusing, you can actually substitute the word worldview, by which I suspect some of you might be more familiar with. So we live in a worldview a story, and we have our identity shaped by it. A worldview is a kind of story. It's a way of seeing and understanding the world that we live in, and it enables the person who embraces that worldview to interpret reality and to assign meaning to their lives. It's kind of like an interpretive framework, if you like, a pair of glasses that we look through in order to make sense of who we are, our identity, why we're here, our mission, and how we should live, our ethics. Now, I can imagine some people who are listening to me thinking, oh, Don, philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. I don't do philosophy. Well, let me talk to you. Of course you do. Everybody does. To be human is to be condemned to philosophy. You think, well, I'm sorry, but I don't agree. I'm not interested in these big stories of philosophy. I just live my life every moment. I try and be as happy as I can for as long as I can. And you know what? We postmoderns, we don't trust your big stories. We know and have been told that they're all just grabs for power. So just lay off. But don't you see that is a worldview? That is a story. That's a big story. It's the story of expressive Western individualism with a good dose of hedonism thrown into it. And it's the story that most postmoderns that you live with and are surrounded by live in. And it has as its chief value this pursuit of happiness and this right to decide for themselves what they would like to believe, want, need, own, and serve. It's about their right to choose. That's the story that largely dominates and shapes the culture that you and I live in the midst of. The highest imaginable uh, good in our present Western story is to be obedient to nothing else and be constrained by nothing other than our personal choices, our rights. You, you think for a moment, 
about any significant issue that's going on in our society. Uh, political and ethical debates, from economic policy to abortion, to euthanasia, to suicide, to sexual identity, to genetic engineering, you, you name it. And inevitably, in that discussion, personal choice is the principle that is invoked, and it exercises a mysterious supremacy and finality over all other concerns in the debate that we're having. Well, I think it's my right, it's my choice, it's my body. End of debate. That is our 21st Western story, and we are dramatically shaped by the story that we live in. You think, well, Don, I'm a Christian, you know, I, I don't go for all that stuff. Listen, I would suggest to you that a lot of professing Christians still allow that expressive individualism of personal choice to be the driving factor in their lives. Jesus simply becomes the means by which they get to what they want and to their happiness a little quicker than the people who don't have him. People like that don't stand under the scriptures as authoritative. They stand over against the scriptures and it's still about their personal choice. What parts of scripture will I embrace? What parts will I allow to be authoritative? What parts don't relate to me and obviously aren't relevant anymore? Stories. They are unbelievably powerful in the way that they shape us, and most of us are not aware of the story that we live in. Ian Proven says this, there's no one who does not live inside a story. The only question is, are we going to make an effort to ensure we're governed by the right story rather than the wrong one? And the only thing that I would add to that, given this series, is if in the past we did choose the right story, are we still living in it? Are we still being shaped by it? Or have we drifted? So what I'm saying, uh, obviously, is the Bible is God's big story. It's not just a random collection of disconnected and sometimes, quite frankly, weird stories with proverbs, songs, rules, and ethics all thrown into the mix. The Bible is what we call a meta-narrative. It is a grand worldview story. And every part of the Bible, each event, book, character, command, poem, and prophecy must be understood in the context of the larger plot. Like all worldviews, the Bible claims to explain the way things are, where we've come to, from, what's wrong, how it can be fixed, where it is going to. It provides the answers for the fundamental questions that every reflective human being asks themselves at some point in their life. Who am I? Identity. Why am I here? Mission. How should I live? Ethics. Now, as, uh, as I mentioned, and you're no doubt aware, postmodernism, you know, the 21st century West, has largely turned its back on the Bible's big story. In fact, on any big stories. We've gone for, you create your own story, the expressive Western individualism that I mentioned before. Turning our back on the Bible's big story, our culture has been left absolutely adrift without any answer to the basic fundamental questions. And the four great uh, institutions of the modern West, science, technology, the market economy, and liberal de democratic state, are at a complete loss to tell us who we are, why we're here, and how we should live. Science can answer the how questions, but it's got no idea on the why questions. It can analyse the cake that Aunt Matilda made and tell you all the chemical components, but it can't tell you why she made it. Science takes things apart to tell you how they work, but it, 
but it can't put them back together to tell you what they mean. Technology gives us power, but it can't tell us how to use it. The market gives me choices, but can't tell me which ones to make. And the liberal de democratic state, as a matter of principle, holds back from endorsing anything. And as a result, in our contemporary culture, we have set before us an almost endless range of possibilities, but we're completely unable to know which, which direction we should go in, who we are, why we're here, how we should live. We are adrift as a culture. Now again, at the risk of redundancy, let me say the Bible is God's big story. And as believers, we are called to understand more than just, oh yeah, I know a few Psalms and Proverbs, and of course I know the Gospel stories, but, but I have no idea how they all flow together. And we have voices telling us, oh, forget the Old Testament, it's just, it's law, it's, it doesn't, I mean, credible Christian voices saying, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Friends, that's a bit like saying, come in and try and pick up King Lear in Act 5. If you don't know Act 1, 2, 3, and 4, you won't have a clue what's going on in Act 5. This is one story, and you can't jettison parts of it because they may be hard to understand. This is our story, and we're called to live in it and live out from it. And if we forget our story or drift from it or let events, dear boy, draw us away from it, then we will simply be absorbed by the stories that surround us, by the cultural stories. And as I say, you have so many Christians who you say, what's your main goal for your, for your children? And I say, oh, that th they could be happy. Well, I want your children to be happy too, just like I want my children to be happy, but I hope you want more for them than that. Because life isn't simply about our individualistic grasp for happiness. It's about a story that we have inv been invited to be part of at great price, I might say. We get absorbed by the stories that are around us if we don't know our story, if we don't know who we are, why we're here, and how we're called to live. N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright says, a criti critical part of our theological and missional task is to tell the Bible story as clearly as possible and allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story of the world. Now you say, well, Don, you know, okay, if, if, if this story, if God's story is so important, can you kind of give me a plot summary? You know, spark notes, cliff notes, wiki summary, just reader's digest. Give me the story. Well, yeah, briefly I can, okay? Again, let me quote Bishop N.T. Wright. He says that the early church understood God's story as something like an act, a five-act play. So act one, you've got creation. Genesis chapter one through Genesis chapter two into Genesis chapter three. Act two, you've got what's gone wrong. So act one is where do we come from? How did this thing start? Act two is what's wrong with the world? And it's the fall. Genesis chapter three through Genesis chapter 11. In act chapter three, we've got the election of Israel. This is the calling of Abraham. The election of Abraham and his children with the intention of undoing the sin of Adam. And that story runs from Genesis chapter, end of chapter 11, right through to Malachi chapter four. Then we have act chapter five. The drama and climax of the story is reached with the coming of the perfect Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh. 
and it records his ministry, his death, his supernatural resurrection. So we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Act 5, the mission of the church. That runs from Acts chapter 1 through to 26th of February? Dementia kicking in. 26th of February, 2023. It's an ongoing act. And this is where you and I come in. We are actors in this story, and we are charged with the responsibility of improvising the final scenes of the play on the basis of what's gone before. That's the story in wiki summary. Let me conclude. This is, as I say, this message is an introduction to the series, but let me conclude by trying to summarize this matter of story and this message by reading a reasonably lengthy quote from a book entitled Living the Story by R. Paul Stevens and Michael Green. And uh, the musicians, you might like to quietly make your way up as I read this story. Try and forget the musos as they come and, and listen. There are some common things about stories. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They have a plot that takes the characters in them somewhere. And the Bible is a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's going somewhere. The Bible is a description of what God has been doing from the beginning of time, what he's doing now, and where it will all be going. The Bible is a grand story that makes sense of all other stories. Within this grand story are many stories, tales of people who lived and their lives and the part they played in the greater meta-narrative. But essentially the Bible points to the one story, God's great all-consuming love and mission to rescue the world. The Bible is also our story. It tells us who we are. It tells us about the God we are dealing with and it tells us about what it means and what, uh, it tells us what it all means and what life is all about. And by looking at it, it helps us make sense of our own life stories and where we fit into the greater story of God. The grand story of God's beautiful purpose for creation and humankind gives us the beginning and the end of our stories as well as making sense of our muddled middle. The series of messages that we're about to embark on is intended to remind us of our stories as disciples of Jesus. Perhaps for some of you it's highlighted the idea or the fact that you, you actually don't think about living out a story. You, you actually are, if you're honest, shaped so much by our Western world story. I, I, I want to be happy. I want my family to be happy. I hope Jesus will help me achieve that kind of happiness and, and they'll be happy and their kids will be happy and we'll all be happy. Some people remind me of an old Afro-American janitor who um, was being bossed around by a whole lot of ladies in a, um, in a a particular organisation, and somebody said to him, how do you manage it afterwards? How, did you, how do you put up with this? And he said, I just put my mind in neutral and I goes where I was pushed. And the tragedy is a whole lot of Christians have their mind in neutral and just simply goes where they's pushed. And friends, I want us to be better than that. I want us to be more than that. We need to understand who we are what we're called to do and be, and how we should live in the light of those things. For some of you, perhaps, you know, you, you, you're aware of the story, 
you give mental assent to the stories, but you stop and think, you know what? Events have happened. Sometimes tragic events, sometimes very difficult events, and I haven't made the, uh, the, the mid-course corrections, and, and I have drifted. And when you drift, you simply drift into the world's stories. I hope for some of you who think, no, Don, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of my story. I'm aware of where my story fits in the bigger story, and I hope you're really encouraged over this series to dig in and to live it out. And that as a community, we would be people who understand the story and we're committed to living it out as well. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.